0: Uh, when asked kind of why I believe in God, it says because God is the best explanation for why things are the way they are. When you look at the world around us and you see a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about as we work through this book over the next 20 weeks, when you look at morality and the existence of the universe and the fine tuning and design of the universe, and when you look at all these different aspects, God really is the best explanation. These things are pointing to God. All right. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome, and hello. Happy New Year. Uh, This is the first stream of 2024, and I am excited to be here. Look, today is going to be something uh, a little bit uh, different than what I've done uh, in the past, and I say that sometimes, but hey, it's always true, I think, (laughs) when I say it. Um, And here's what's different is I I reached out to the community of listeners uh, here on YouTube and Instagram uh, and said, hey, uh, what do you want to see more of in 2023? Do you want to see more apologetics? Do you want to see more theology? What about culture and worldview or conversations with skeptics? And the two most voted options were conversations with skeptics and apologetics. So what I did and, and I'm like, okay, that's what people want. What can I do? And so I reached out to some skeptics and some people I disagree with on issues, I've invited them on and those will be some future shows you can look forward to, as well as I was then on a Facebook group and a book popped up. Uh, it was this book. Let me show you. Here's the book that popped up on this Facebook group. Armin Navabi, Why There Is No God, Simple Responses to 20 Common Arguments for the Existence of God. And so I thought, hey, this might be a great possibility is uh, I still want to do interviews um, with with scholars and address what I think are some of the biggest arguments. But here's a book talking about the most common arguments and providing a response to each one. So why not take one chapter a week, one argument a week, look at that argument, look at his response and kind of work through it. So again, uh, what's going to be different about this is uh, this is similar to last week where this is a kind of a YouTube, Instagram, more informal, more relaxed kind of Talk through something and have a QA. and uh, a It doesn't matter how long this goes. Uh, if you have a bunch of questions, I'll go a little bit longer. If you don't have very many, I'm going to cover the one chapter and be done. Um, if you want to get the book, you can download it for free uh, on the website, and I'll give you more information on that here soon, or buy it on Kindle like I did for like $2, uh, and it's a great resource, and so you can kind of work through it with me. Each chapter is like five pages. It's super simple, super short, uh, so I'm not claiming that this is the greatest objection against these arguments, but what I found was this. Now, I'm curious uh, if if um, if Armin would say that these are the best arguments for God's existence, because in the subtitle, it says these are 20 common arguments for God's existence. And I would agree with him there as I kind of look at the different arguments. Like, yeah, these are common. You hear them a lot. I don't think that they're the best, but they are common, as well as then he responds to each one of those. And so I think that there's value in discussing the best arguments for and against and kind of having those really deep conversations. However, sometimes those are not the arguments that you are going to come across when having conversations, Uh, that it's very possible um, that in the conversations that you're having, you're hearing the more common stuff. And if only this kind of high level intellectual stuff is being discussed or these big time objections, um, then it's not really helping you address the things that are coming up to you. And so as I opened this book and started to read it, I found that the objections that he's raising are the things that students ask me when I do Q&As with students. And so when students come to me with a bunch of questions, as you will see here in this first chapter, um, this is what is happening. And so I feel like there's value Probably like Armin did in his book, there's value in addressing the common stuff as well as addressing the more serious, more maybe weedy stuff. And so anyways, there will still be long interviews and teachings on some big stuff, but I do see there being a value in addressing these arguments as well. And So my hope is, as we work through this for the next 20 weeks um, here, that maybe you'll kind of work through it with me and bring your questions and objections. But with each week, you'll probably hear, uh, here's a common argument that Christians use for the existence of God. Here's why that's either good or bad. Here's how he responds to it. And here's what I think about his response. And so uh, I think it should be fun uh, and and uh, something different. Uh, I haven't kind of worked through a book chapter by chapter like this responding to an atheist book. So I think this kind of gives a little bit of uh, touching on that, interacting with skeptics, as well as more of that apologetic that people are looking for, as well as I'm going to bring on some guests, as well as, hey, if this prompts you to have questions or you to think of someone that should come on and talk, um, I would love to chat about that and have uh, other guests on the show. So Um, I don't know how this works on Instagram now that I'm live streaming from my computer, but if you're on YouTube, uh, there is a link there that if you want to join the show and have a conversation with me about something today, uh, you can click on that link and join me. If you're listening after the fact, then just kind of follow on social media on when these are coming out. I'm on plan on every Tuesday at 2 PM Pacific time. That's the plan to kind of do this more informal, uh, conversation through this book. And then we're going to walk through, um, other conversations later. As well as if you wanna post your questions, either on Instagram or YouTube, you can post those in the chat and I will do my best to get to those today. So um, back to, again, this book. Here it is again, for those of you just joining, Armin Navabi, Why There Is No God, Simple Responses to 20 Common Arguments for the Existence of God. So this is the book uh, that we're gonna be walking through for the next 20 weeks. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about the author. Armin is the former Muslim, and from Iran and the founder of Atheist Republic. And so the Atheist Republic is a nonprofit organization with over 1 million fans and followers worldwide that's dedicated to offering a safe community for atheists around the world to share their ideas and meet like-minded individuals. And so I think this book was published in 2017. So it's been out for a little bit. And here he's just trying to kind of start the conversation again, even he says in the book, he's not going super, super, super deep. Each chapter is about five pages or so, easy to read, easy to make sense of. He provides a few reasons and just trying to start the conversation. He then provides further reading at the end of each chapter if you want to go deeper into that objection. So that's kind of the premise of the book and what he's kind of talking about. Now, jumping in, first, some kind of introductory comments based on his introduction, and then we're going to get to kind of the meat of his uh, first objection, which would be on the design argument for God's existence. In the introduction, uh, he talks about this idea of the burden of proof. And I think this is something so important for Christians and atheists to recognize is that who bears the burden of proof? And he says here, um, and I didn't highlight this one, um, but he pretty much says, let's see if I can find it. During a debate, here it is. During any debate, it's the job of a person making a claim to provide support, evidence and reasoning for that claim. And I think I couldn't agree more. If you make a claim, you bear the burden to provide evidence and reason to support your claim. So Christians, if we're going around saying God exists and Christianity is true, we bear the burden to present reason and evidence for the truth of Christianity and the existence of God. Um, And so I agree with that. And often what happens and the way that I try to help Christians think through this is is often other people make claims And then like, for example, an atheist will come up and say, there is no God. And the Christian says, yes, there is. And the atheist then says, prove it, (laughs) what's your evidence? And now you're left trying to provide all this evidence for the existence of God, because you made the claim, yes, there is, there is a God. Instead, recognize that the person who makes the claim bears the burden of proof to support that claim. So when an atheist comes up and says, there is no God, You should be asking the question, well, what do you mean by God? But also, how did you come to that conclusion? What is your evidence and your reason to support your claim that there is no God? And so often, Christians put additional pressure on ourselves by accepting a burden of proof by making a claim when the other person has already made a claim, and we can kind of just push back against them and ask questions for their reasoning. Now, what I found interesting, though, in this section is Armin goes on to say this, In the case, this is a quote, quote, in the case of debates about God, the burden is on the believer to offer support for her position if she wishes to be considered seriously. In reality, the only necessary argument against believing in God is simply that there is no evidence that any God exists. An atheist doesn't need to justify her lack of belief any further. This keeps the burden of proof on the side of the claimant where it belongs. So here's what's interesting: is kind of this idea of atheists don't really need to bear the burden of proof because they're not really making a claim. Um, he says, you know, they don't have to justify their lack of belief; they just simply lack a belief. Well, let me point you back to the title and. Armin, mean, if you ever watch this series, uh, any point of this, I would love to have you on maybe at the end or throughout uh, and kind of have a conversation because I, I have a lot of questions that come up as as I kind of work through this book. The first question is this. If I pull up the title of the book again, Why There Is No God, <laughs> that is not just simply like saying, I, did, I don't believe that there's a God or I lack a belief in God. You're making a positive claim that there is no God and you're going to present reasons why there is no God. If you're going to say, here's why there's no God, you now bear the burden of proof to say, here's why there is no God. And so there is a burden of proof that it falls on the shoulders of the skeptic or the atheist in this case to then give reasons and evidence why you're claiming that there is no God. Now with that, to then say, well, the only necessary argument against believing in God is simply that there is no evidence of any God this is one of my pet peeves is when people say there's no evidence, um, because there's a lot of evidence. It's just, this, there's a lot of confusion Then I think of, what do we consider as evidence? What do we count as being evidence? What do we mean by evidence? Um, and, and, and then is it like persuasive? Um, because here's, here's how I often approach this conversation. If, um, Now, a simple form would be like a painting is evidence that there's a painter. A building is evidence that there's a builder. Um, You could look at it like this. There's what's called inductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning is the argument from the best explanation. So, for example, if you go outside in the morning and it's wet, the ground is wet, you can say, well, I think it rained. And, and what is the, your evidence? Well, the fact that the ground is wet. Now, obviously, if the ground is only wet next to a car that is sparkly clean and the ground is not wet anywhere else, then okay, it probably didn't rain. It's wet because someone washed the car. Um, if the ground is only wet on the grass and not the sidewalk, then it the best explanation then is that someone watered the, the, the yard. Someone you know watered the yard and, and it didn't rain. But if the ground is wet everywhere, on top of the house and the car and the grass and the street and everything is completely wet, then the best explanation is that it rained. Well, how do you know it rained? Well, cause everything's wet. And, and so there's, a, there's, an, there's something that we experience. There's something that we see and then we have to say, okay, what best explains the thing that we see? And this is gonna get into the first chapter. And so the same is true. When we look at our world, we have to say, well, here is the world. What is the best explanation of it? And so here's, here's the difficult part with the claim by just simply saying, well, there is no evidence. What's the evidence that it rained? The fact that everything's wet. And someone says, well, you don't know how it got wet. It could have gotten wet some other way. Okay, maybe but the fact that it's wet is evidence for rain. Maybe it's not the best evidence, maybe there is a better explanation, but unless you can provide this better explanation, the fact that the ground is wet is evidence that it rained. The fact that there's something here is evidence that something took place. And so I think that we can look at the world around us as we're gonna talk about with the design argument, say the fact that there is a world is evidence of a creator. And to say, well, there is no evidence, is, is I think the same thing as like, well, there's no evidence that it rained. Well, no, the evidence is the fact that everything is wet. The evidence of a creator is the fact that there's a creation, and so to claim that there's no evidence whatsoever. It also, I think, ignores the the arguments and and the, the, um, the cases that people have made for the existence of God and just kind of sweeps it away as if strong cases have not been made. Now, again, this is why it's important to talk about evidence when discussing apologetics, because here's, here's kind of how I would put it, based on a lot of conversations I've had and how you know, philosophers like William Lane Craig put it, is that we don't necessarily have scientific evidence for the existence of God. We don't. So if that's what we mean is that there's no evidence for God, and by evidence we mean scientific evidence, well, I can agree with you. But what we do have is this, we have scientific evidences that support premises inside of philosophical arguments that have theological conclusions. Now, maybe it sounds like I'm just arguing in a circle or something, but that's not true. So, so take, for example, the design argument. Design requires a designer. The universe has been designed, therefore, the universe has a designer. Well, if its premise one is true that design requires a designer, And if its premise two is true, that the universe exhibits design, shows design, then the conclusion follows logically necessarily that our universe has a designer. Now that has a theological implication, what could possibly design our universe? What what could possibly exist that is an intelligent being that it can exist outside of our universe that can design our universe and fine tune our universe for existence? That has a theological implication. But notice that's a theological implication that's being drawn from a philosophical argument that has premises. Premise one, design requires a designer. Premise two, the universe exhibits design. And there's scientific evidence that supports premise two that our universe exhibits design. And so that's one way we can look at it is that we have evidence that supports a premise in an argument that points to a conclusion that has theological implications. And so in one sense, you could say, yeah, there is evidence for God. There's things that we experience. Around us that are best explained by God. You can use that philosophical inductive reasoning. But to just simply say, there's no evidence, therefore I have no burden, I don't think it it brings a a fair conversation to the table. It's something I hear all the time. um, And then no matter what you present as evidence, often gets kind of just dismissed as that's not real evidence. Um, And it's like saying, um, here's a bad analogy, but it's like you're at a murder trial and it's like, here's the evidence that Bob is guilty of murder, here's a gun, here's a fingerprint. Well, that's not evidence. Uh, you know, it could have been planted or, you know, and it kind of just dismisses the things that you're presenting and they say, now where's your evidence? Well, you just dismissed all the stuff that I had as evidence. Um, there's a really funny video. I told you this is more informal. This is me just kind of going off my head. There's a really funny video on, on, on YouTube, um, Lutheran satire did a great video on the Trinity and Trinitarian bad analogies for the Trinity. But there's also one with Richard Dawkins where they're having this conversation of he's like, Hey, you know, uh, the Bible's full of ridiculous stories. Like people are rising from the dead and they're like, and then the people are like, respond like, yeah, that's why it's a big deal. And he goes, but people can't rise from the dead. And they're like, well, except for those people that rose from the dead. He goes, well, you can't trust those because they're in the Bible. And it's this kind of idea of like, when you dismiss all the evidence for something and then say, where's your evidence? It's like. Well, how does that work? You just dismiss it all. Let's talk about why you are dismissing this evidence. Let's talk about the reasons why I think this evidence points to the conclusion I'm talking about. And so all this to say, I think he gets the burden of proof right in the sense that the person making the claim bears the burden, but the atheist in making a claim why there is no God, there is no God, then bears the evidence or bears the burden of proof to explain that claim. Now, the second thing here that he says is that in reality, atheists, um, and just simply lack a belief in God. He says an atheist doesn't need to justify her lack of belief any further. This is a super common saying that you hear all the time is that atheists simply lack a belief in God. The, the issue though, is that maybe some do they'd say, well, I just just don't know. I don't really have a belief either way. Well, that's not really an atheist. And this is where the people say, well, no, there's different kinds of atheists. There's strong atheists, and there's weak atheists, and there's different things. And that kind of gets things really complex. I think this simple question that I would respond back with is this. If I said, God exists, would you agree, disagree, or say maybe? (laughs) I don't know. Because if you say, yes, God exists, you're a theist. If you say, I don't know, you're an agnostic. And if you say, no, he doesn't, then you're an atheist. Atheist, uh, no, God, no, uh, no, God, no, theist. Um, and so to simply say, well, I lack a belief in God. Well, there's a lot of stuff that lacks a belief in God, right? Cats lack a belief in God, dogs lack a belief in God. You know, People say rocks lack a belief in God. They say, well, that doesn't count because it has to be something that has a belief. Okay, so you have to be willing to have beliefs or able to have beliefs and then to lack a belief. And, and it kind of gets muddy. The point here, though, is that there may be some people who aren't sure, and that's fine. But in this book, again, the title is Why There Is No God. That doesn't sound like a lack of belief. That's saying, here's why there's no God, and I'm going to try to show you why there is no God. People don't write books about their lack of belief. If I lack a belief about you know, the, the best baseball team in Canada, I'm not going to write a book about it. If I'm writing a book about the best baseball team in Canada, then I have beliefs that I'm including in my book. Does that make sense? And so the beginning of this is is difficult because I think the burden of proof it gets right and and who has it or or the person who has the claim should have it, I think then it just simply gets quickly pushed off onto the Christian and says, now Christian, you now have the burden. We don't because we don't have beliefs that need to be given reasons for. Now his example, and then I'll get to the first chapter. His example is, Um, Would you believe the claim that flying pineapples exist until proven wrong without any evidence? Probably not. You would withhold belief until there's evidence to support such a claim. Um, I don't think you just withhold. I get it from the atheist perspective that a claim like flying pineapples exist sounds as crazy as God exists. But I think that you can actually provide reasons why there are no flying pineapples, right? You can look at The nature of pineapples, and they don't have wings, and they're not conscious, and what is a pineapple? A pineapple is a fruit. Fruit don't fly. You can look at a lot of things and say, I have good reason to believe that there are no flying pineapples. Therefore, if someone comes along then and says, flying pineapples do exist, you better have a pretty good reason to support your claim that they do exist, because I have good reasons to support my claim that they don't exist. And so that's what we're looking at in in this talk about existence of God. If I say there is no God, I should have my good reasons for why there is no God, rather than simply saying, well, I just, I don't have any evidence. So um, that's where kind of a, a brief kind of look at the introduction um, and what we are discussing here. Okay, so the design argument, chapter one, in the 20 common arguments for God's existence that he's responding to, chapter one is looking at this Quote, says, science can't explain complexity and order of life. God must have designed it to be this way. Now, the first sentence of this chapter, he says, arguably the earliest function of religion was to explain natural phenomena that primitive man could not otherwise understand. This is one of the most common responses I get two talking about god as being creator and it's this idea that well hey people have used god as an explanation to describe things that they don't understand like before it, you know it rained and people said the gods are crying or uh, there was lightning and thunder it's like thor is or zeus or whoever uh, thor is mad and throwing down lightning boats or the the storm is is crazy and poseidon is upset and so we need to please the gods right this is that, that animistic religion where every physical object has this god or spirit within it we just have to please the gods to make things better. And so it is true that in the past, lightning storms and volcanoes, as he says here, these natural forces were once attributed to deities. That is absolutely true. However, to then go and claim that therefore every natural thing that we say, well, God must have done it as Christians has a natural explanation, I think is to kind of create this hasty generalization. Now, maybe it's based on reason that there's been a lot of things that have kind of pointed that way, right? There's a lot of things that used to be explained using God that we realized God didn't necessarily directly do. Um, but you have to take this on a case by case basis. And so he says here. He says, "Quote: Even though there are things in the world that we don't yet understand and may never truly understand, there's no reason to simply take make up an explanation. In effect, belief in God is not really an answer; it is simply a way of saying I don't know. Yet the existence of deities raises more questions than it solves. And so his first response to this design argument is that what Christians are pretty much doing is what's called a God of the gaps reasoning. And I see this." all the time being claimed of my videos and different things. And this is why it really is a common objection that I'm just saying, I don't know. Therefore God did it. But if you look at arguments that are presented for the existence of God, it does not say, I don't know. Therefore God, but we are providing positive reasons for why it is God or requires intelligence, like an intelligent designer. It is based upon things that we do know. So, for example, think about the design argument again. Design requires a designer. Can you think of anything in our world that has been designed that did not have a designer? When you see information in something that points to the mind of an intelligent designer behind it, you don't get information from pure randomness. Randomness breaks down information. Randomness can destroy. Randomness does not produce designed things. Uh, You look at computers and cell phones and cars and airplanes and watches and anything and say, look, this is something that clearly has been designed, therefore there's evidence. The fact that we see design is evidence that there is a designer. And so it's not saying, I don't know, therefore God. It's saying, based on what I see leads me to a certain conclusion. It's kind of like this, J. Warner Wallace talks about uh, at a crime scene, he's a cold case homicide detective, or at least he was, he's retired. And he says, look, when you show up at a crime scene, there are different ways in which this person could have died. If there's a dead body, it could be a death by natural causes. Uh, They just died of a heart attack or something like that. There could be a death by accident. This person tripped and fell and hit their head and died. There could be a death by suicide where this person has killed themselves, or it could be a homicide. Someone else came in and killed them. And so based on what you observe, allows you to make a determination of the cause of death. So for example, if you go into the room where this dead body is, and you find that this person has been stabbed with a knife 10 times in their back, what are the chances that this is a death by natural causes? No, people don't get holes in their back naturally. Is this an accident? Did they somehow accidentally fall on 10 knives? Well, unless there's some board that, you know, like people lay on those nails or something. Unless there's some board with 10 knives in it that they may have accidentally bumped into, uh, probably not an accident. Is this suicide? Highly unlikely. How are you, you going to get back there and stab yourself 10 times in the back before you somehow you um, can't keep going? The fact that what we see, knife holes in someone's back, is evidence that there is a homicide, that someone came in the room, committed murder, and now has left the room. And you're now going to start searching for the murderer, not trying to figure out how these holes got in the person's back naturally. Now, the response that someone would give is, well, but we know that murderers are real. Those are people. And it's like, well, that's true. So notice this. Notice, I think, the reason that goes on here. If the response is, but we know that murderers are real, so that can be an explanation, but we don't know if God is real, so you can't use him as an explanation. It's kind of a form of circular reasoning where you're saying, because there is no God, you now can't use God as an explanation for this evidence and therefore give me a different answer. Well, no, but my evidence is pointing to God. Well, no, you first have to confirm that God exists before you can use him as an evidence or as an explanation for your evidence. But no evidence that can ever be given can ever show he exists because you first have to show that he exists. And it just seems very circular in any way that you can dismiss the person's conclusion, if that makes any sense. Instead, you would say, no, the, what we see is evidence. You're not saying, I don't know what happened to this body. A murder must have happened. There's a homicide. No, you're saying, because of what I see. And this Christian is, is, is doing the same thing, or at least should do the same thing. I love the way the great Coco puts it. He says, uh, when asked kind of why I believe in God, it says, because God is the best explanation for why things are the way they are. When you look at the world around us and you see a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about as we work through this book over the next 20 weeks, when you look at morality and the existence of the universe, and the fine tuning and design of the universe, and when you look at all these different aspects, God really is the best explanation. These things are pointing to God in the same way, looking at a painter and a painting and saying, well, there must be a painter. It's not like painter of the gaps. Like, I don't know how this got here. Therefore, someone must have painted it. It's because of what we do know that paintings don't happen naturally. Is evidence that there's someone intelligent had to create this thing. And so this idea of God of the gaps, I think is not a good argument. And and again, it's a super common one, but I don't think it's good because I don't think it takes into consideration the evidence and the reasons that Christians are giving to that point to God. And it almost kind of just dismisses those reasons and saying, you don't have any reasons. You're just saying, I don't know. I want to respond sometimes, you know, be like, did you hear what I just said? Like, I, I did not say, I don't know, therefore God, I gave you reasons. I gave you a logical argument that draws from true premises supported by scientific evidence. Like philosophical arguments are not, I don't know, right? Uh, this is how it functions. And so this is a common uh, response uh, is this God of the gaps. And here's why I don't think it fits and why I don't think it's what Christians are actually doing. Um, the second thing that he addresses here, he says, um, Since then, many scientists and philosophers have tackled this issue and have shown that complex systems can arise without a designer. Evolution by natural selection is one such system. So now he's saying, look, not only is appealing to God a problem because you don't know what happened, therefore you're just saying that God did it. And hey, we've shown that a lot of these naturally occurring things have a natural explanation. Um, And so, Christian, you claim that, no, but this is really complex. This is complex, Ryan. You know, it, it can't. Uh, happen naturally. And he's saying, no, we've shown that complex things can come about without a designer. Evolution by natural selection is one such system. Well, here's again the issue, is this is the system in which I and others are challenging whether it is accurate. Evolution is trying to make sense of what we see, but the question is, is it adequate? And here's how, again, I would present it going back to that previous example, If the argument is the ground is wet, how do we explain this wet ground? And someone says, Well, I think it rained. And someone else can go, It didn't have to rain. It could have been a hose. It could have been a garden hose. See, we have a way of explaining the wet ground. Someone came out here with a hose and wet the ground. And you're saying, That's true. That is an explanation. And it could be true. The issue is, is that the best explanation? The fact that you have come up with something that might work does not automatically dismiss the other person who has a different explanation like it rained. Now what you have to do when you have competing explanations, it rained or someone just sprayed the ground with a hose, is you have to start looking for markers that can help you distinguish or or show that one or the other is true or false. So again, as I mentioned, if it's only my driveway, not the neighbor's driveway, then yeah, maybe the hose is the better explanation. But if it's my driveway, the neighbor's driveway and every neighbor's driveway and on top of the house and in the backyard, and the front yard and across the street and the park and the top of the trees and everything, then the fact that you have an explanation, say, well, the garden hose did it, I don't think is best. And so the issue, what he's trying to say here is the fact that. Now, I think it's interesting, he admits that there is what appears to be at least design, is that we do have designed complex things, but this evolution can provide that. I'm saying evolution is an example, or as an explanation, intelligent designer is also an explanation, but which one fits best. And so... Here, the point is not necessarily to make a strong case against, if you want to put in the questions, you can do that, and we can talk about the evidence for and against evolution intelligent design. But here, I just want to say that his kind of dismissal of intelligent design by saying, look, we have an explanation for complex systems, evolution, I don't think is sufficient. You have to actually show why that one is better. Now, here's then the the way in which he tries to present this. I think it's interesting. I have a video to show you that explains it. He then points to The mathematician John Conway from Cambridge University back in the 1970s created a game that shows how complexity can arise from a few simple cells following basic mathematical rules. And so he makes the case here in his chapter that here is an example of how complexity can arise without a designer. And, um, And there's a few things, and rather than maybe, rather than uh, explaining it here, he links in his book to this video. And so let me just show you the video that explains John Conway's uh, creation, which is called The Game of Life, uh, and how uh, it, it, it points to, Armin is saying, to the fact that you can get complex systems without a designer. And so I want you to watch this and see, do you think this adequately addresses or adequately provides a reason that complex systems can arise without a designer? Here is the video.
1: Back in the 1970s, an unexpected breakthrough was made by a mathematician named John Conway, here in Cambridge. He devised something called the Game of Life. A simple simulation that shows how a complex thing like the mind might come about from a basic set of rules. The simulation consists of a grid, a bit like a chessboard, extending infinitely in all directions. Each square of the grid can either be lit up, which he called alive, or dark, which he called dead. Whether a given square is dead or alive depends on what is happening in the eight other squares that surround it. For example, if a living square like this one has no living squares nearby, the rules say it will die of loneliness. If a living square is surrounded by more than three other living squares, the square will also die of overcrowding. But if a dead square is surrounded by three living squares, it becomes lit or is born. Once you set an initial state of living squares and let the simulation run, these simple laws determine what happens in the future. The results are surprising. As the program progresses, shapes appear and disappear spontaneously. Collections of shapes move across the grid, bouncing off one another. There are whole kinds of objects, species, that interact. Some can even reproduce, just as life does in the real world. These complex properties emerge from simple laws that contain no concepts like movement or reproduction. It's possible to imagine that something like the game of life, with only a few basic laws, might produce highly complex features, perhaps even intelligence. It might take a grid with many billions of squares, but that's not surprising. We have many hundreds of billions of cells in our brains.
0: Alrighty, there is the video that Armin links to in his chapter uh, to support this case that complex systems can arise without a designer. So I'm curious if, as you watch that, what thoughts came to mind for you? Does this show that you can get naturally occurring things without? a designer that are complex, and therefore, if this is true, then you should be able to get complex structures in our universe, in our world, on Earth, without the need for a designer as well. Now, a few questions come to my mind. Is Number one, is this game, the game of life, is created by John Conway, but this thing that is here is a contingent thing, meaning it's something that had a beginning that depends on something else for its existence. And so you it requires an explanation of who created the game. And clearly this game, the game of life, does not have a natural occurrence. It is the result of an intelligent mind. The second thing is if, it says here, you have these simple patterns that are built into the system, then you can get these complex structures. Well, The question then becomes is who built in these simple patterns, like if a square has no lit squares around it, then it dies. And if a square has four or more lit squares around it, it dies from overpopulation and it only survives between one and three. Well, those are arbitrary rules in a sense that are created by John Conway. He could have made it different. He could have said it it continues to live as long as it doesn't have eight. Between one and seven squares, only eight is overpopulation. He could have made the rules anything he wants. The point is, these are rules put in by an intelligent designer into this game to allow it to function properly. It also, this game requires the intelligence of a computer system running on power. Um, that comes from intelligent people who've set up power grids to supply power to this computer that has been programmed with this game. Something that's not naturally occurring either. And lastly, you could produce this game. You could create all the rules. You could have it in the computer. But if you don't populate it with life, then it, nothing will happen. Because no squares are lit up, then all the squares are dead. Because the only square only gets lit when there's three squares touching it that are also lit. And if John Conway only populated one square with life in the simulation, then that one square would have nothing touching it. It would die of loneliness and therefore it would cease to exist. And so the population of the lit squares, the life in the simulation, requires also intelligence to input life into it. And that life that is input by John Conway has to be placed in very strategic locations, where they don't. Because if you spread out all the lit squares, and they all instantly die, and your game is over. And so you have to have ones that are touching each other and surrounding ones that the new ones can pop up and die off, and then you can have this simulation. Now, yes, once you hit play. Now it is a naturally occurring thing based on the rules. But the question is this, does that adequately explain or does that, is this a good analogy for what's happening here on our world, the complex systems of living creatures? And does that adequately explain the question we're trying to address? Where If this video is trying to show that there's no need for a creator, we're not asking the question of what happened after the creator pushed play and now there's all naturally occurring things. Like I would agree in the sense that God created our world with um, structures in place and systems in place where he's not, you know, taking the earth with his hand and going like this and spinning it. He, he made gravity and everything to where the earth is now spinning naturalistically. Naturally, he's not sitting there spinning it and he's not making the sun go around. You know, he's not he's not making rain fall down. There's there's water cycles. But the question is, well, how those water cycles get there? Who created the idea of evaporation and, and water movement all this kind of stuff? Does the fact that after hitting play these complex things can come about by simple rules, erase your need for a designer. And the answer I think is clearly no, because if John Conway didn't exist, there would be no game of life. There would be no rules and there would be no life in this game. It requires intelligence. I actually think this illustration pointed to here in the book is a wonderful illustration for intelligent design that God created the place for life to exist. God created rules that structure how things are gonna function and operate, and then God input this world with living things that have the ability to adapt and reproduce and grow and change to their circumstances, but it's all within this framework and the set of rules that God has created. I think this illustration perfectly shows this idea of intelligent design, not one of naturalism apart from any need for designer. So Armin goes on after he he describes this game of life and he says, depending on the initial circumstances, the results of each game can vary substantially. Some create incredibly complex, symmetrical designs that constantly grow. Others move towards a point of stagnation before growth stalls entirely. Oops, my page just went back. In every case, the resulting design occurs entirely from the mathematical laws governing the behavior of cells, not from any conscious behavior of the person playing. Now notice kind of this, the, this switch here that I think he is making is it goes from the complex structures after hitting play are the result of mathematical laws governing it, not of design. But you have to go back one more step and say, but, but how did those mathematical laws get into place? Who created these laws that it's following? Who input the life into the system and who created the system? None of that would exist without this designer. And so I don't think that this video... As he says here, quote, the game illustrates then that any system with its own rules can operate itself and move toward increasingly complex results without outside interference. And he says to watch videos, here they are, and that's the video that I just showed you. Um, So here's what I think is ultimately being said. If you start with a creation and life and rules governing the reproduction and spread of that life, then you can get a creation and life out of that. Then, you, If you start with this complex system, you can get complex systems. That's not what we're debating here. We're asking the, the more fundamental question of how did the complex system arise in the first place? And so, um, anyways, I thought it was fascinating. I, I was really interested in that video, and I think it's a great example of intelligent design. I might use that moving forward. All right, the last argument then that he makes then is addressing the point that I just talked about. He says, okay, but complexity... Actually, here's two more points that he makes up. Complexity is not the marker of design. And he says um, the watch analogy, right? So you find a watch in the woods, what's the chances this came about naturalistically? And the answer is there are none, points to designer. He says it's not good uh, because we know that watches are not natural and they do not arise in their own nature. If design were truly responsible for everything, there would be no fundamental difference between a stone and a watch because both would have to be designed by an intelligent creator. And here's what I think is happening is there's a misunderstanding of what Christians say when we talk about design. We're not simply talking about complex structures. Um, Oh, I was gonna create something that could pop up and show this better. Um, So sorry, I don't have it, but... Uh, Think about this. Actually, here, can I do this really fast? We're going to try something here on the screen as I talk. Can I put some words text? Okay, if I put this up on the screen. Oh, no. Go here. Here we go. If I put this up on the screen, boom. There it is. That is very complex. If that is your password (laughs) to get into your email account, no one is hacking it. But the issue is that is complex and that's, that's simple in a sense is that I just smashed the keyboard a bunch of times and that popped up. And so that has complexity, but there's something that that is lacking. Here's what it's lacking. Now, how do I edit this text? Here's something now that it has what it is called specificity or it has design, a little bit designer information or purpose. No, 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 no. Now this is communicating something but it's not complex. A small child, an animal, you could sit there at a keyboard hitting NO, 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 and NO. Get, it, get this? It's not very complex, but it now has a pattern. When Christians talk about design, when we see complexity, it's not simply just complexity, like, wow, that's crazy complex, like that first thing I put up on the screen. Um, and it's not something simple like this, it's a combination of the two. What would it look like if you combine a pattern that has information or is pointing to something? And you combine complex things and it would look something like this. I am talking on YouTube right now. This is communicating something. And so it has this, this has um, a purpose behind it. It has specificity, but it also is complex. You're not going to just get this by shaking a bunch of tile, you know, uh, 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 Scrabble tiles up and laying them on the table. It's not going to produce something that makes a coherent sentence. This is what is called specified complexity. It's complex with a purpose. And it's things like this that require intelligent minds. And it's things like this that I think is the difference between a rock and a watch. A rock might have some complex structures inside and ultimately is the cause of design, but it's something that is naturally occurring and and produces through chemical reactions and whatnot. But when you take that rock, now let me see, I told you this is more informal. Let me see if I can pull this up because I think this is a great example. And I don't remember if I've done this So you look at this rock and you say, Hey, is this natural or intelligent? Well, this can happen naturally. Now, ultimately, as he's saying here, if God is the ultimate creator of all things, then, um, then yeah, then he wouldn't, this rock wouldn't exist without him. But this is not anything necessarily special, but if you click forward and let's see if it will actually go forward, Hey, click to the next one. There we go. What about these rocks? Is this the same as this? And you realize very quickly, yes, well, this does happen naturally. It breaks off and through chemical structures and whatnot, you get a rock, but this does not happen naturally. This is an arrowhead. There's purpose involved in this, right? There's now a design here. There's intentionality. This is an example of specified complexity, not just simply complexity. Uh, same thing here. This is a very complex, and sorry if you're listening on, on podcast, that was a rock versus an arrowhead. Now, here is a desert um, with, with, like the, with lines, and the question is, how the lines get here? If you're like, well, we got to find the person who had the rake that came about and raked this desert. That's crazy. We recognize wind does this. This is a complex structure of lines in the sand on the desert. You're not going to get this repeated. This is an unrepeatable thing to get the exact same pattern of lines. Extremely complex. But there's no purpose here. There's no intention. There's no ultimate end goal here. That's very different than these lines in the sand where someone wrote, will you marry me? This is what we're talking about with specified complexity. And now here I can maybe skip ahead in this presentation Um, because, yeah, I have kind of those other examples that I just went over uh, where you can see this screen now. Um, yes, it's not just N-O-N-O-N-O and it's not just a bunch of letters. It's, I love Chick-fil-A sandwiches. There's, there's now it contains information. It's both specified and complex. And so there's absolutely a difference in what I'm trying to say here. There's absolutely a difference in what he's talking about is a, well, if God is the ultimate designer of everything, then there's no difference between a rock and a watch. Well, that's not true. Rocks have complex structures. Snowflakes have complex structures, but it's pure randomness. So yes, Natural thing can create complex structures that are purely random, just like that example of the game of life that we saw from Conway. That is pure randomness. But if those lit up squares are going to somehow turn into a sentence or, or, or a con- coherent, meaningful sentence, then you're going to say someone had to program. Someone had to program that thing as an end goal to get those squares into a coherent sentence because that doesn't happen through pure randomness. And so that's the issue here is complexity is not necessarily the marker for design. It's complexity with specified information. That is what we're talking about is specified complexity. So his last objection here, and then I'm going to get to your questions if you have any. His last objection is if complexity requires a creator, then who created God? There's two ways to kind of think through this. And again, this is one of the most common questions I get from students is, um, you know, if our universe has a creator, then who created God? But he also is addressing it in a slightly different way is saying, look, if complex things need a designer, the designer of the complex world would have to be even more complex, therefore also requiring a designer. So he's looking at this kind of pattern of complexity. He says in his chapter, he says this quote, this is perhaps the greatest problem with the idea of complexity by design. The greatest problem is if complexity requires a creator, then who created God? Invoking a deity doesn't solve the problem of complexity. It introduces a new problem. If all complex things really do require an intelligent creator, then why is that creator himself not bound to the same rule? Would the complex deity not require an even more complex creator and so on for infinity? Now, this does seem, I think, to make a lot of sense. It does seem to follow. If we're being consistent, this is what it should look like. However, I think that there are some responses to consider here. Number one, theologians will often argue that God is not a complex being, right? So just because our universe is complex and requires a designer, it does not follow that God has to be more complex, we're saying complexity points to a mind, right? Not that the mind also has to be more complex. In fact, theologians will argue that God is very simple in one sense. God is not made of physical moving parts like a watch where all the gears have to fit together to move the hands to stay on time. God is not complex like an iPhone with all the chips and information. God being spirit and non-physical does not or is not made of a bunch of complex moving parts that have to fit together. And so in that sense, being a non-physical spiritual being, God is very simple. And so I don't think it follows that therefore that he's super complex and therefore also requires a designer. I also don't, as I mentioned, think it follows that just because Complexity points to designer. That then the designer has to be more complex, and so I think it can fit that God is is less complex. He's not very complex. He's very simple, and yet he can still design the complexity. Now, the other aspect of this objection is saying, well, if a creator requires a, cre- a creation requires a creator, then who created God? Now, this is what philosophers call a category fallacy. Now, uh, the way in which I explain this to students is I, I will say this. If I were to ask you, what does the color red smell like? What's the answer? Now, they'll often say roses, and no roses smell like roses. What does red smell like? And the answer is, well, it doesn't smell like anything. And it's like, oh, okay, let's say I'm singing a song and I sing, oh, you're like, wow, Ryan, that was so beautiful. Thank you. That was a C note, right? Yeah, it was. How much does a C note weigh? What's the answer? You're like, well, it, doesn't. Notes don't have weight. They have sound. See, this is what is called a category fallacy. A category fallacy simply is when you're asking a question about something, you have to ask a question that actually matches the category of the thing you're asking about. So if you ask what something weighs, the thing you're asking about needs to be something that has weight, if you're asking what something smells like, the thing you're asking about needs to have something that has smell. If you ask what does the C note smell like, that doesn't make any sense. It's a category error because you're asking about something that doesn't have smell, but then asking what does it smell like, and it's impossible to answer. And so whatever you put in the blank, what does blank smell like? Whatever goes in that blank needs to be something that has a smell. How much does blank weigh? Whatever goes in the blank needs to be something that has weight. So if we're asking the question, who created blank? The thing that's in the blank needs to be something that is created. If the thing that you're asking about is not created, then there's no way to answer the question, who created it? Because it's just not created. Just like there's no way to answer the question, what does red smell like? Because it doesn't have smell, or how much does the ceiling weigh? Because it doesn't have weight. Are you following me? So, God. As Christians describe or define, and scripture points to, is God is a non-created eternal being. And so to ask the question, who created God, is like saying, who created the non-created thing? Well, no one did. Now, atheists will sometimes object and say, well, you're just kind of punting to this thing that's that's eternal, and therefore you're getting away from the problem. Well, I don't think so. I think that everyone, Christians and atheists, recognize that there has to be what is called a first mover or the unmoved mover, that whatever started everything cannot itself be started or else then it just goes back to infinity. Now, this is not the scope of the video here. And again, we can talk about this later if you want, but that creates a whole bunch more issues. What everyone should recognize is that there is a point in time in which things began and whatever started all these things itself cannot have a beginning that thing has to be eternal. In philosophical terms, these are called contingent things, things that Began to exist, are finite, limited, and rely on something else for their existence. And then there's something that's necessary, that it just exists necessarily within its own nature, has always existed eternally. And I think both atheists and Christians are saying look, our universe clearly is contingent, it had a beginning at the Big Bang. Therefore, how do you explain it? Well, if, if you explain it with more contingent things, then you just go back forever. Well, who created that? Who created that? Who created that? Ultimately, we have to get back to something that exists necessarily that has always been there, that caused everything else. Now, atheists for many years have said that it was the universe. Well, the universe has just always been here. And we're re- now realizing that's not true. The universe is not the necessary thing because we realize that the universe is contingent. That's what science has been pointing to. So now we have a new need for what is the necessary thing that caused or led to the creation or started the process of all contingent things to exist. Christians say the necessary being is God. That's what scripture reveals him as. The atheist is still maybe looking, but just because they haven't found an explanation, some will say it's a quantum vacuum. Some say still say it's the universe. There's other explanations. But the problem is, is that the Christian is not saying, I don't know, and therefore bringing up something ridiculous. Um, The Christian is pointing to what we recognize is there has to be what's called the unmoved mover. The thing that's always existed that started everything else. For us, that is God, and we have good reason to believe that's him, but the atheist is still looking. And so we're not saying that, uh, so this idea that if complex requires a creator, then who created God, that is a category fallacy because God is not a created being. That's not what we're talking about here, and so it doesn't make sense to ask this question. Things have to have a beginning, they have to have a start, whatever started it is this eternally existing thing or the creator who is God? And so um, as he finishes his chapter, he says, um, <clears throat> yeah, that atheists don't know the answer to how some things got here and how to explain the complexity of some things. But not knowing an answer to a question is not a valid excuse for making up a fairy tale to explain it. And um, so I've tried to help you see this is not a fairy tale. What we're doing is we're drawing from things that we see based on what we understand about our world, that complex things that that show Information and design require designers that our universe does exhibit these complex structures. And I have a lot of videos that I'll link to that kind of talk about that if you want more of that. Um, And therefore, um, it is not unreasonable. This is not a fairy tale. To believe that there is a creator and designer of our universe is a conclusion that is drawn based on the scientific evidence that we have that there are complex structures that can't arise by natural causes or that we have no explanation for. Now, the atheist will say, well, that's a god of the gaps. We just don't know yet. Naturalism will come in and explain it. Well, you could, I could argue the same way and say, well, that's naturalism of the gaps. Well, we don't know, therefore naturalism. Let's not just throw these lob, you know, objections in of like, well, you don't know, therefore naturalism. And it's like, you don't know, therefore God of the gaps. It's like, no, let's actually give the other person the benefit of the doubt that they're drawing a conclusion based on valid reasons. And let's discuss those reasons and why it either does or does not point to the conclusion. Just like if it's wet on the ground, you don't say, Hey, it rained. Oh, that's rain of the gaps. No, I I could be wrong. Maybe it got wet a different way, but I'm basing it off of a reason. Let's not treat people that way. So uh, Hannah, there's a question mark there. I don't know quite what the question mark is. And so I'll stick around for a little bit if you want to kind of clarify. Um, But There is chapter one. Again, if you're just joining here towards the end, uh, I am going to be working through this book by Armin Navabi, Why There Is No God, Simple Responses to 20 Common Arguments for the Existence of God. He's addressed uh, 20 different things, responded to 20 different things, and so I'm going to take one each week. The plan right now is every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific time, I'm going to be taking on the next chapter. Each chapter is like five pages, so if you want to get this book for free, you can go to atheistrepublic.com and you can download it for free. It's also like $2 or $3. $3 on Kindle, $5 paperback. And so if you want to grab a copy and kind of work through it with me and then bring your questions and and want to talk through it, uh, I would love to have you kind of join me on this journey. But with that, there is part one. Hopefully this is interesting, trying to give you a little bit more apologetics, trying to help kind of interact with skeptics and what they have to say. Again, Atheist Navabi is the founder of Atheist Republic, a really big kind of atheist, a nonprofit organization. Um, And so there is, is his argument. Number one, next week, if you're curious, Next week is God's existence is proven by scripture. Uh, Now, if you want, let me just throw this out there really quick. Here are uh, his different chapters. Can I pull them up here? Okay, God's existence is proven by scripture. Some unexplained events are miraculous, and these miracles prove the existence of God. Morality stems from God, and without God, we could not be good people. Belief in God would not be so widespread if God didn't exist. God answers prayers, therefore he must be real. I feel a personal relationship with God, therefore I know he is real. It's safer to believe in God and be wrong and, and go, than go to hell. God isn't defined. God cannot be comp- comp- Comprehended or described, one must simply have faith. And then number 10 is there is no evidence that God doesn't exist. And so those are the first 10 common arguments for God that he's addressing and responding to. We're going to talk about those, whether they're good or bad arguments, and then look at his answers. So hopefully this is interesting. Uh, if it was, hey, subscribe, like, check it out for next week, share the word that we're going to be addressing another one next week, and uh, I will see you there. Until then, I'm going to post some other videos that are going to come up over here to help you continue to think well and engage the culture well. This show is Think Well. I don't know if I said this at the beginning. My name is Ryan Polly, training you to think well so that you can engage the culture well from a biblical worldview. And again, ton of other content on a lot of the stuff we talked about with design arguments and everything. So I'll link to those videos and uh, on YouTube at least. And, um, I will see you next week for another stream and uh, more conversations in the future. Until then continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, and Jesus, because they are worth thinking about. See everybody and have a wonderful rest of your day and a good week.
1: Bye.